this Advent, we are looking at the Bible's big picture, the Bible's four-part meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Last week in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the account of creation and Christ, the second person of the eternal God, who is also Christ, the second Adam, the covenant head and the covenant of grace. The creation mandate, or the cultural mandate, is given in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, telling us to take care of the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue and have dominion on the earth. And that is still in effect, but no longer under the covenant of works, but now under the covenant of grace. And we need this covenant of grace because Adam violated the terms of the covenant of works or covenant of life by sinning against God and bringing about the fall of mankind into sin. The vast majority of the Bible is the history of redemption, God redeeming mankind from this fall. And so to understand the Bible, it is vital to understand the fall of man into sin, as recorded in Genesis 3 and 4, so that we might see it. Let's first pray together. Indeed, Lord, we come to you again in prayer uh, because we need you. You are the God of revelation who has seen fit to reveal yourself throughout times and ages and to have your word recorded, written down, preserved. But as it was first revealed and now for it to be revealed to us as your word, we need you. And so we would ask for your Holy Spirit to come, to bear witness to the reading and the preaching of your word, that we would receive it as your word. And so to that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, it's kind of nice that Genesis 3 breaks down into three parts, and Genesis 4 breaks into four parts. And so we'll look at them each in turn. In Genesis 3, we have the three parts of the corruption, the curse, and the covering. Let's first go to verses 1 through 7 and see the corruption. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now notice in those first seven verses, and in fact all of Genesis 3, the word sin is never used. And yet how vividly it is described. We see that sin begins with temptation, and temptation originates with Satan clothed as a serpent. Satan's modus operandi is to question God's word 
and to question his goodness, suggesting that he's actually withholding something good from you. Did God really say you shouldn't marry unbelievers, or is he just keeping you from all those good potential spouses? Did God really say you should never cheat on an assignment, or is he just keeping you from getting that good grade? Did God really say to tithe and be good stewards of your resources? He's just keeping you from buying the things you really want. Did God really say to love your enemies, or is he just keeping you from exacting some appropriate revenge? And isn't it interesting that there is just one thou shalt not command, and it is immediately disobeyed. You can put a child in a room full of a thousand toys, and if you say, you can play with all of them, but don't touch that one, what's the first one they want? That one, right? Satan goes on to clearly question God's word. Satan wants us to have a weakened confidence in God's word. So he says, you're not going to die. When you eat of it, you'll be like God. And it begs the question, do you want to be the image of God or do you want to be equal to God? And verse 6 is where we see the three parts of temptation give birth to sin. First, Eve saw that the fruit was good. She determines good for herself. Second, she determines that it was pleasing to the eye. And then third, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. These three temptations are offered to Jesus in the wilderness. Satan suggests a hungry Jesus turns stone to bread, just as Eve decided the fruit could be good for food. Second, Satan suggests Jesus let the angels catch him from a jump off the temple to attract public attention, just as Eve saw the fruit as pleasing to the eye. And then Satan suggests Jesus worship him and gain all the kingdoms of the world, just as Eve saw the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so today for us, Satan still offers the same temptations, getting us to crave something that is not good making that thing pleasing to the eye so that it seems like a good idea to us. And then third, telling us all the advantages that would be gained by pursuing it. Jesus shows us the right way to respond to such temptation. Throw God's word right back into the face of the tempter. Eve shows us the wrong way to reply to temptation. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Adam just standing there, doing what? Nothing. Isn't this still the sin we see in so many men? Yes, dear, whatever you say. Fruit from the tree for dinner? Sure, that sounds fine. Be a man, Adam. He should have been protecting Eve, not standing there with his finger up his nose. The word sin is not used here, but our children, learning the catechism, as we heard today, can tell you that the first sin of our first parents was their eating the forbidden fruit. Sue Jakes, the children's ministry coordinator for our denomination's publishing arm, shares a great story from her son. Her son was sitting in a college class in which the professor said, the problem is that we don't really have a good definition for sin. And he raised his hand and said, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And the professor said, yeah, but what, what is lack of conformity? He said, not being or doing what God requires. Yeah, but what's transgression? Doing what God forbids. Oh, well, then I guess we do have a definition for sin. And the son called home and 
said, thanks, Mom, for teaching me the catechism. And so there we see the corruption. And now from verses 8 to 19, we see the curse. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, you put her here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth for children. Uh, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now notice that before God had spoken any words of judgment or corruption, Adam and Eve's own conscience first convicted them. They already experienced guilt and shame. And upon hearing the voice of God, they hid in the midst of the trees. So it is our first inclination to guilt and shame to escape. Some escape in food and drink, some escape into drugs, some escape into technology, pornography, fantasy. We seek to hide from God by some form of escape. The greatest misery of the sinful condition is losing communion with God. So hiding from God, hiding into escape, keeps us miserable. In our humanistic world that puts people at the center, we tend to think of sin in terms of how it affects people. But sin, first and foremost, is an offense against the holy God. All of mankind is affected by Adam's sin, but God doesn't say to Adam, don't you realize how this is going to affect everyone? God says, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Now, Adam has three options here. He could lie. Ooh, don't know what you're talking about. He could simply tell the truth. Yes, I did. Or he could blame shift. It wasn't my fault. And that's exactly what he does. And notice, though, that Adam doesn't simply shift the blame to Eve, does so in part, but ultimately blames God. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit. So see, God, if you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't really have sinned. So God, really my disobedience is your fault. Next time you yell at God, listen to Adam come out of your mouth. And in verse 13, notice the blame shifting from Eve. The serpent deceived me. 
And you, God, created all things and you ordain all things. So really my disobedience, God, is your fault. What part of don't eat that didn't you understand? (laughs) And in verses 14 to 19, God then names the curses to the three. First, to the serpent who will be cursed above all the livestock. All animals are going to be redeemed, but not the serpent. Isaiah 65, verse 25, regarding the new heavens and the new earth, says the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. And so verse 15, where we read that the offspring of woman will crush the serpent's head and you will strike his feet or his heel is known as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. Here we have this foreshadowing and telling of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The offspring of woman will be bruised by the serpent, but ultimately he will crush the serpent. Indeed, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. But in Romans 16, the Apostle Paul says to the church of Jesus Christ, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It is by the church's gospel ministry that Christ continually crushes Satan. The second part of the curse and redemption is to the woman. She will have pain in childbearing, but she's going to bear an offspring. And every woman will tell you that pregnancy is no picnic, but at the end, you have this beautiful baby. John 16, 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Indeed, every birthday is a celebration of the redemptive hope in Christ's birth. And a second aspect of this curse to Eve is that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Certainly human history has shown that part of the curse to be true with the subjugation and oppression of women. In the first sin, we see Adam being passive, neglecting his responsibility to protect and care for his wife. And Eve should have used her God-given intelligence to reject the serpent to encourage her husband to protect her rather than try to become the solo decision maker. Both are equally guilty. And God's redemptive plan then is to put men into the role of spiritual leadership as active repentance from sin and to put women in roles of intelligent submission as active repentance from sin. Winston Smith wisely says, when spouses learn the difference between attacking each other and attacking sin, conflict takes on a whole new meaning. Then the third part of the curse, in verses 17 to 19, are the curse to man. Every day you will toil. Your work could have been sweet delight, but it will now prove difficult. And yet we see throughout redemptive history that work is what we are called to do, and there is sweet delight and productivity in it. So Colossians 3.23 ultimately says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So we have the corruption, we have the curse, and then verses 20 to 24 show us the covering. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. 
the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Back in verse 7, Adam and Eve had attempted to make coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. <laughs> we can be honest, fig leaves aren't much of a covering. The worldly effort at covering up our shame is to encourage self-esteem. And just as fig leaves don't really cover nakedness, so self-esteem doesn't really cover shame. It actually increases shame because self is the problem. We ought to feel ashamed. It was Mark Twain who said, man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. Shame is the proper response to doing something shameful. There's a reason we feel guilty when confronted with our sin. We are guilty. And so verse 21 is this profoundly important verse. The Lord God made garments and clothed them. It's an immediate and incredible act of God's grace where the Lord himself covers our guilt and shame by Christ. This is why Christ came. Jesus, the child who crushed Satan by his birth, life and death, referred to as the humiliation of Christ. Jesus humiliated to take away our humiliation. Jesus came to be shamed in order to redeem our shame so that we are clothed with Christ. And that takes us into chapter 4, the originally, original sibling rivalry. And in chapter 4, we have the four parts of the players, the problem, the punishment, and the posterity. Look at the players in verses 1 in the first part of 2. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, how many here are the oldest child in your family? The one who was made to do all the things that your younger siblings weren't made to do. You had to do all the babysitting, right, for your younger brothers and sisters. Now, how many are the youngest? You have less pictures taken of you, right? You dragged to all the stuff that your older siblings were getting to do, and you just had to sit there and color and behave or something. And how many like me are the middle child, lost in between the older and younger, right? That spoiled youngest child and the bossy older child. Right? We all think we have it bad, right? No matter what the birth order. We think that everyone else is somehow unfairly favored. Here in Genesis 4, how many people live on the entire planet? Four people. And already they can't get along. Now, it is very probable that Adam and Eve had given birth to others, sisters and brothers born before and or after Cain and Abel, who simply don't come into this account, not because they are unimportant, but because they don't factor into this, the redemptive history uh, revelation. And so we have those players, and then uh, verses 2 through 9, we see the problem. Now, Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. 
In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. So notice that there are different jobs and different offerings for those different jobs. There are different chores for different kids. Whatever it is our chore is, we are to do the best, to be faithful to whatever we're asked to do. And so we read that Cain brought some of the fruit, but Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn. He brought the best parts. Abel brought the best of his work. Cain brought less than the best. He kept the best for himself. It's what we often do when asked to do something. We really maybe do the minimal effort that we're asked to do. We don't really go above and beyond because we want to keep our energy for ourselves to do the things that we want to do. And so the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. We see that Abel's heart is in view, his person that's reflected in his offering. In fact, Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Indeed, all Old Testament offerings foreshadow the person and work of Christ himself. And so we today understand that God looks with favor upon us because of the perfect offering of Christ. Because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, covering our sin. We want to excel, to glorify the Christ who covers us. Good works are thankful works. It disrespects Christ to do sloppy work as students or employees or parents or whatever. God does not look with favor on Cain because what Cain did, or more what he didn't do, was sinful. And so the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And is this not true for us as well? We are to hate and forsake sin because it is an offense to God who knows all things that are good for us. As John Owen says, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And then after confronted in this, Cain does not seek help from Abel. So why, why kill him? If God likes Abel and Abel is gone, then maybe he'll like me more. Abel's goodness makes my badness look worse. We love to see the fall of others, especially celebrities, because we think it makes us look better. 1 John 3.12 says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? 
because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Indeed, the world hates righteousness. When questioned by God, Cain blatantly lies and even boldly questions God's right to ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain. Yes, you were. So having seen the players and the problem, let's go to verses 10 through 16 and see the punishment. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Look again at verse 10. The Lord God says, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Can I share with you some good news? Your brother's blood cries out for you. See the gospel in that. Our brother Christ, his blood, cries out to the ground for us. Charles Spurgeon comments on this, the blood of Jesus has a mighty tongue, and the import of its prevailing cry is not vengeance, but mercy. Now, the punishment of Cain has two parts to it. First, the ground itself. The ground that he works, which used to produce life and crops for him, will no longer do so. It's sort of like King Midas in reverse. King Midas, everything he touched turned to gold, which had good and bad elements to it. But for Cain, the ground he touches will turn to death because of his sin. It's really the original curse to Adam, and it's magnified for Cain. The fact that the ground would still produce at all is a work of God's grace. That we can enjoy any productivity is a work of grace. When things don't go well, when our painful toil sees little or no productivity, we are reminded of the sin of the first man and his first son. But then we also think of genuine productivity that does take place. We give thanks to God. The world in which we live now is the redeemed world. Christ has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom reign. He is redeeming the curse against mankind. And that includes the curse against the ground. And so the level of productivity that we see even in this age is astounding. There's still toil to be sure, but look at all the gracious productivity of human endeavors, an ongoing gift of God's grace. And when Christ returns and brings the new heavens and new earth, the fully redeemed, fully restored land with no remaining curse. But in the meantime, work hard, work well, and enjoy God's gracious favor. The second part of this curse, connected to the first, is that Cain would become a restless wanderer. He would not be able to stay in one place because the land will dry up and die wherever he is. And so the words restless and wanderer mean that he's never able to settle. He won't know which way to go. 
And Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. He realizes he's going to be out of God's presence, which is really the most miserable aspect. But Cain is not even being fully punished for his sin. He's not experiencing the full wrath and curse of God. Jesus endured the full wrath and curse of God on the cross so that his dealings with man are merciful. Thanks be to God that he has rescued us from the guilt for our sin. Hebrews 12 says it like this. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Your brother's blood is better than that of Abel and speaks for us. And so Cain says, whoever finds me will kill me. And later we read that Cain is a wife. And so it's often asked, who are these other people? Where did they come from? The answer is quite simple. Adam and Eve had more kids than just the three that are named in the Bible, Cain, Abel, and Seth. One commentator puts it this way. In that first generation, all marriages were brother-sister. In that early time, there were no mutant genes in the genetic systems of any of these children so that no genetic harm could have resulted from close marriages. The law against marrying close relatives comes in Leviticus much later, and Cain, not expecting to die anytime soon, since those generations lived for eight, 900 years, knew that eventually there would be lots of people, and he felt the threat of them because of his sin. And so he went out from the Lord's punishment, the greatest punishment of all, and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In fact, the word Nod means wandering. So he is a wanderer in the wandering. The redeeming work of Christ is to rescue the wanderer in his wandering. God's gracious commission is for us to go out into the world to make disciples of those who have only known wandering. And so finally, having seen the players, the problem and the punishment, beginning at verse 17, we read about the posterity. Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son, Enoch. Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujel, and Mehujel was the father of Methushel, and Methushel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubalcain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubalcain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wife, to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call in the name of the Lord. The posterity, the descendants of Cain become enemies of God and of God's people. We see sin increase. In verse 19, polygamy is introduced by Lamech, the great-great-grandson of Cain, as he marries two wives. And poetically, in verses 23 and 24, we see his great pride in being able to do whatever he wants and beware anyone that tries to cross him. But notice these two descendants, Jubal and Tubal-Cain, and see God's common grace. 
God's common grace is not saving grace, but it's God's common grace to all, that the sun shines and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. All mankind profits from God's common grace, whether it's believers or not. The descendants of Cain invent musical instruments. Jubal invents the string and wind instruments, the harp and flute. Tubal Cain invents metals and metal smithing, including tool-making forging of all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. We can be thankful for the good gifts that believers and unbelievers have to offer. Even though we recognize unbelievers are not serving the Lord and we desire their salvation but are glad to work with them and to enjoy their work. As believers, we know that we serve the Lord. We know that we are God's image bearers and we seek to reflect God in every area of life. In John Calvin's commentary on Genesis 3, he said, Because he could not drag God from his throne, Satan attacked man, in whom his image shone. And therefore he endeavored in the person of man to obscure the glory of God. Do you see that Satan can't touch God? He can't even scuff up his shoes. So he comes after us, God's image bearers, and seeks to mar and scar God's image. Celebrate the Christ of Christmas by rebuffing Satan's efforts. Repent of sin. Steer clear even of temptation. Live a life of holiness made possible by our Redeemer King who has rescued us and set us free to reflect God in every area of life. Celebrate the Christ of Christmas by fulfilling the cultural mandate. Rule and subdue. Keep and care. Bring order where there is chaos. Bring peace where there is conflict. Grow something, sing something, create something. Do your job well. Love your spouse and your children and your enemies. Heal the sick. Clothe the naked. Feed the hungry. Promote flourishing. Steward resources. We still experience a measure of the covenant curse. There is still difficulty, but redemption has happened so that we can now flourish and have measures of success. Wherever there is evidence of the covenant curses resulting from the fall, we do good works to apply covenant blessings that result from the redemption by Christ. Celebrate the Christ of Christmas by crushing sin, applying gospel victory in every aspect of life. And may the truth set us and the whole world free. Amen.